1: And folks, this segment of the show is brought to you by our friends at TaylorMade and the TaylorMade TP5 and TP5X golf balls that are played by Ricky Fowler, John Rahm, Rory McIlroy, Dustin Johnson, and Jason Day. It's the hottest tour ball in golf. Now, you know those names, but thousands of other golfers have already made the switch to TP5 and TP5X, and now they're available in high visibility yellow. Are you next to make the switch? Check it all out online by going to TaylorMadeGolf.com for more information. Now back in making his fourth appearance with me here on Next on the TS, four-time winner on the PGA Tour, Tim Simpson. Let me remind you about Tim's background. He's from right here in Atlanta, Georgia, played his college golf at the University of Georgia, where he lettered in 1975 and 76. During his time there, Tim was named All-SEC, All-American, and a college golf all-star. Turned pro in 1977, he won four times on the PGA Tour at the 1985 Southern Open. The 1989 USF&G Classic and back-to-back years at the Walt Disney World Oldsmobile Open in 1989 and 90. He's collected five other professional wins, including five Georgia Opens. He had two top 10 finishes in majors, both in 1990 at the US Open and the PGA Championship. He was named the comeback player of the year in 1989, in 1990 he was named the Georgia Professional Athlete of the Year. 2004 he was inducted into the State of Georgia's Sports Hall of Fame. Two years later, in 06, he was inducted into the Georgia State Golf Association Hall of Fame and named the Comeback Player of the Year on the Champions Tour. Tim is widely regarded as one of the great ball strikers in PGA Tour history, and I'm very honored he is back with me again tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Tim, thanks for coming back on the show. Tim has won four times on the PGA Tour at the 1985 Southern Open, the 1989 USF&G Classic and back-to-back years at the Walt Disney World Ultimobile Open in 89 and 90. He's collected five other professional wins, including five Georgia Opens. He has two top 10 finishes in majors going uh, back coming back at the 1990 U.S. Open and the PGA Championship. He was named the Comeback Player of the Year in 1989. In 1990, he was named the Georgia Professional Athlete of the Year. 2004, he was inducted into the state of Georgia Sports Hall of Fame. 2006, he was inducted into the Georgia State Golf Association Hall of Fame and named the Comeback Player of the Year on the Champions Tour. Like I said at the top, Tim is widely regarded as one of the top ball strikers in PGA Tour history, and I'm very honored he is back with me again tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Tim, thanks for coming back on the show.
0: Thank you so much, Chris. It's great to be back with you.
1: Tim, I want to start out our time tonight by going back to your days at the University of Georgia. I think when people think about UGA, they think about great football teams, but my goodness, when I was looking back over your career there and some of the players that, uh, that you got to play with and other players that have come through the UGA program, it's a who's who out there. Talk about the great golf tradition at the University of Georgia.
0: Well, it's, It it is a story tradition there, and I had great teammates. And although I turned pro after two years, it it was very, very enjoyable. Uh, The great news is we're all still close. We all still talk frequently on the phone and or text. And uh, I had set up a reunion uh, or was working on a reunion for all of us because we're getting up in years. And it was all set, and then COVID hit. And so we had to put it off. But, uh, you know, my roommate was Chip Beck, who had a great career on the PGA Tour, was on a couple of Ryder Cup teams and shot 59. Uh, still one of the greatest friends of, of my lifetime. <clears throat> Jim Becker was on the team, John Gibbs, Gus Sylvan, uh, Robert Donald, Joe Walter. Uh, and then the year after I turned pro, Griff Moody uh, transferred back in and, of course, was a Walker Cupper and first. Um, Chris Hack took over around 99 or 2000 from coach Kopas, And, oh, my gosh, uh, I think they won a couple of national championships. And uh, I know when we did him into the state of fame a couple of years ago, he said his biggest regret when he signed these players was not getting a, a piece of their future action on the PGA Tour. <laughs> but no they, doubt. Yeah, as of several years ago, uh, players that he had recruited and had joined the PGA Tour had over $98 million in earnings. Wow. Yeah. He's a great guy and a great coach. I love the way he coaches. Bob Tway, and I used to talk about it a lot. Of course, Bob was an Atlanta native, but played at Oklahoma State, and he was like, what what are good? And, you know, stir and he lets them run. He doesn't overcoach. You know, if if you need some work on your short game, he's like, you know, take a few days off and go home and get with your coach. You know, uh, I really, really admire Chris Hack and Jim Douglas, the assistant coach.
1: And Tim, there's a lot of great golfing uh, golf players coming out of the other programs in the SEC. Talk about some of the guys you played against that were you know, were there at Florida, there at LSU, there at Auburn. When you were competing at Georgia?
0: Uh, you know, it, it goes in spurts, Chris. Um, it's not that every year, you know, you'll have six, eight, ten studs come out of college and join the PGA Tour. It may be three or five years or whatever, but I was in one of those uh, talent-rich eras, uh, as were my peers on my team. Uh, Wake Forest had um, Jay Haas and Curtis Strange. They did pretty good, didn't they? (laughs) Uh, uh, Florida Florida had Andy Bean. Gary Koch had just graduated, had Andy Bean and uh, Phil Hancock, who had a stellar uh, amateur career. Um, Houston had Keith Fergus, Ed Fiore, a guy named Robert Hoyt. Oklahoma State had good gracious, uh, oh, I I don't know, three or four All-Americans. Uh, it, it was just, it was just unbelievable. Arizona State had great players. I mean, it, it was just uh it was just a plethora of amazing talent during the mid, late 70s.
1: Tim, I want to switch gears a little bit. one One of the things that you are known widely for is being one of the best ball strikers of all time. Talk about what it means to be a great ball striker. And and what did you do in order to acquire that skill?
0: Well, um, a whole lot of hard work. And um, Bob Rotella, who Tom Kite and I have worked with longer than anybody, uh, 37 years now, I figured it out early. We were his first two clients on the PGA Tour. He's always very complimentary to other pros that are searching for the perfect swing and going from this coach to that coach, and he says, you know, everybody would agree Tim's the best iron player in the world, and they'd say, oh, yeah, and and he would say, you know what? He's worked with the same teacher since he was 14 years old that you've never heard of, you know, and in my era, of course, we didn't have smartphones, and, uh, you know, you could there was no uh, internet, so you couldn't just zap films to your coach back in Australia or Sweden or wherever he was. So you had to figure it out on your own. And I was kind of like Ben Hogan. I mean, I beat it out of the dirt. And uh, I can remember in 1990 at the British Open, I was paired with uh, Lee Trevino. And he told me, he said, Timbo, he said, I finally found somebody that hits as many balls as you. I said, yeah, what's his name? He said, He's this big old kid named VJ Singh. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, well, eventually I met it because we'd be the only two out there at dark, you know. And and looking back, you know, after three back surgeries, you know, I just wore myself out. But I I didn't have the most beautiful swing, you know. Some people have been very complimentary and flattering of it, but I didn't I didn't have a Tom Percher swing, a Payne Stewart swing, a Tom Wisecos swing, a Sam Snead swing, Adam Scott, you know, that are just you know, make you drool when you watch them. They're so beautiful. But I did have one of the simplest swings ever, you know, and my peers would get on, you know, for a couple of weeks at a time, you know, and win and maybe finish third the second week. I had the ability when I felt a certain position in my wrist at the top of the swing, I would, I I would get on for six or eight weeks at a time. Uh, the, The reason, the obvious, question you would ask me is well why didn't you win 25 tournaments well as you know i wasn't the greatest putter in history (laughs) you
1: know you can hit it in
0: there five feet or three feet but if you miss it it don't look it doesn't look good on the scorecard but uh anyway i just kept it simple i just i kept it simple you know and and i regret making two changes before i made my champions tour debut. Uh, After I'd had my brain surgery, wrecked the issues with the Lyme's disease or the tremor in my left hand, I I, I still very silly made two changes that I will regret till the day I die. I changed my leg drive, which the first time Sam Snead told Byron, you got to watch this kid hit a golf ball. So Mr. Nelson introduced himself to me when I went in the locker room at his tournament there in Dallas. And he said, Sam said, I got to watch you hit it. When are you going out to the practice team? You know, and that's like practicing. That's like practicing in front of Moses. you know, or for Jesus. I mean, Byron Nelson watching you. And the very first swing I made, he said, Timmy, don't ever let anybody change your leg drive. He said, You got the most beautiful leg drive I ever saw. And I turned to him and I said, Mr. Nelson, you ought to like it. I learned it out of your book. <laughs> so, you know, I drove my leg very hard laterally. Um, you know, a la Tom Lehman and uh, uh, Kenny Perry, you know, and and that leads to dropping it slightly under from the top and and promotes a little draw. I hit it very straight, but when I play my best, my ball always fell right to left.
1: So that begs the question: With that kind of compliment from Byron Nelson, why did you change?
0: You know what? I, i had gotten fat being out of the game and I uh I wasn't disciplined enough to just say, you know what, I'm gonna lose twenty five pounds before I go on the champions tour and I was I was trying to to I always played with a flat wrist at the top, which the kids are playing with today. But Tiger was really hot, you know, obviously two thousand had his whirlwind year and he cre you know, he had a cut wrist at the top. Well, I think I told you one time before, when I was seven years old, I severed my left thumb, and I I have probably 30% mobility, and I can't bend it at the top like everybody else. So I learned to play with a flat wrist, which made an extremely repeatable golf swing, and I could get by with it because I had tremendously strong wrist and forearms. Uh, Hale Irwin played with a flat wrist, um, a, a number of great ball strikers. And it's funny because things revolve in golf. And now I'm seeing more and more and more players, including her that have gone back to a flat wrist position at the top. Um, And they're getting away from the cup position at the top of the left wrist.
1: Tim, you mentioned Bob Rotella a minute ago. Talk about the influence and the role that he played in your golf career.
0: Well, the great Carol Mann, the LPGA Hall of Famer, God bless her. We lost her a few years ago. She was a dear friend, and she came up to me at the Atlanta Classic, and I was I was the guy that you know that they wrote about, had all this talent, had this work ethic like nobody else, didn't drink, didn't smoke, you know, was totally dedicated, but I wasn't winning. I would somehow self sabotage, and she came up to me and she said, "Tim." I met this young PhD from the University of Virginia this past weekend. I heard him speak, and, oh, my gosh, you have to meet this guy. And uh, so I'm like, she said, he just started working with Tom Kite. And I'm like, well, Tom Kite's working with him. I damn sure need to be working with him. And so, anyway, I called him, and it started one of the greatest friendships of my life. Uh, We don't talk real often anymore, but it doesn't matter if he's sitting with the president. He'll take my call, and he offers me advice. You know, I shoot competition archery. It's the same as golf. You get into bad flaws, and you you got to work your rear off to overcome them. And, uh, you know, the same stuff applies. I mean, his stuff applies whether you're pitching a baseball, hitting a golf ball, shooting an arrow, whatever you're doing. And uh, so I continue to work on it.
1: Tim, uh, when I look back at your career, you won the Georgia Open five times. And you you won down at the Callaway Gardens on tour. You know, for a lot of players, playing in front of the home crowd and the the expectations and all that sort of stuff from a mental side would be difficult. You seem to thrive on it. Is that something that gave you confidence and momentum, knowing that you had the hometown fans in your pocket?
0: Oh, yeah. I think it, I think it works that way for anybody on tour. It works one or two ways. It worked the other way for me at the Masters. Uh, it wasn't that it was my hometown. Obviously, it was in Augusta and I was from Atlanta. But being a Georgia boy, I put so much pressure on myself to play good. And I mean, I had no success there. I had a paltry career at the Masters because I would get so psyched out. You know, and every year, every night, Bob and I would work on, it's just another tournament, just 18 sets of tees, 18 holes cut in the green, just go play. But I'd get out there on the first tee, and, oh, my gosh, it was like I was in front of a firing squad. But you can use the gallery to work in your favor. And it did so in New Orleans in 89 when I built Norman, or when I beat Norman. Uh, Greg was Tiger in his prime uh, at the time, number one in the world. And Bob and I had come up with a game plan the night before. He said, Timbo, is your wife there? And I said, "I said uh, he, he said, well, there'll probably be about four or five people in the gallery pulling for you. Other than that, you know, it's going to be 10,000, assuming Greg's going to win. And we came up with a plan. He said, I just want you to plod along, play your game. Just stay into your game and totally ignore him, and and um, you know just play your game. And Greg and I were good friends, and we joked all the way around and this and that. <clears throat> and it was very obvious the gallery was expecting him to win. He only won once, and that was four years prior. And we were on number twelve, twelve or thirteen the final day, and we both hit it right over the pin, about fifteen, <laughs> fifteen, seventeen feet behind the pin. And he was an inch outside of my ball. So he putted first, and he had a bad putt, but I got a great read off of it. And I center cut it to take the lead. We were tied. (laughs) And when I did, the whole momentum of the gallery changed. And people started screaming my name, and you can do it, and you're the man, and all of that. And then two holes later, he three-putted, and I birdied. Then 16, (laughs) I hit the flag from the fairway. Should have gone in the hole. And it was over, and uh you know, so the the plan worked out, so you can turn the gallery in your favor you know if you just <clears throat> if you're polite and courteous and appreciative, and you just play your game, you know they're like, "Hey, this guy's the underdog, you know, I'm kind of liking him to win, you know, so it worked great for me that week.
1: So talk about that, Tim, that from a mental side of the game, when you're out there playing, particularly in the situation that you just talked about, whether it's Greg Norman or it was Tiger Woods or whoever it was that the crowd was you know, screaming for, how do you keep all of that and, and shut that out and focus on the task at hand? And even when you have a lead and you're, and you're coming down the stretch, how do you focus on that and not get ahead of yourself or not let the, the, the cheering crowds take you out of focus?
0: Well, you read a lot today uh, in all different sports of staying into the process and staying out of results. And every sports psychologist on earth talks about that. You start thinking results. This is for the Masters. And if I par the last two, I'm the Masters champion. You're doomed. It ain't going to be pretty on TV. But Bob created that. That's Bob Rotella, 100%. And if you're staying into the process, you know what, like you're from Atlanta, if you're driving in bumper to bumper downtown traffic in the morning or the afternoon, and 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 you're just thinking about driving versus, oh my gosh, is the guy on my right going to hit me? Is the guy in front of me going to stomp on the brakes? Am I going to rear end him? You know, you're going to be a nervous wreck. So it's basically all you can control is staying in the process and doing what makes Chris what Timbo, makes Timbo hit the ball great, you know, kind of deal. And uh, that's become very, very common. The other thing is that we work on so hard, and I challenge you and the viewers to pay attention in ensuing months, whether it's football, basketball, baseball, you know, last year's World Series was a great example, or golf or tennis. So many times when guys have astounding performance. You know, and they'll interview them, and they'll say, Chris, what the heck were you thinking today when you hit four home runs? Pay attention to how many times they say, you know what, I was just having fun. And believe it or not, amateurs, amateurs have such a difficult time, believing this. The greatest athletes on earth, Bob and other sports psychologists, work with them on trying less and having fun. You know, in other words, on a one to ten, ten meaning you're trying so hard your eyeballs are about to pop out of your head. One meaning you're asleep, you know, about a four to five, you will always perform your best.
1: Take that a step further, Tim, because we hear that a lot. You're right. And, uh, you know, Jack <laughs> Nicholas talks about, you know, how relishing the pressure because if you're in the, pre- if you've got pressure on you, that means that you're in contention to win. So you want to have that pressure. Talk about dealing Absolutely. with that and, and learning to become. Uh, have, have pressure be your friend. How do you embrace that?
0: Well, I, I think Jack, so ways. Anyway, and I, I remember um, I was paired with Jack Jr. At Crosby one year, he was my amateur partner. And after we got through, uh, we were actually leading and, and Jack came over and he said, that's the most excited I've been in years. You know, my son leading the tournament with you, you know, and I'm like, yeah, you forgot about the Masters win a couple of years ago. <laughs> he, he, uh, you know, it. it um, I, I don't know. Jack I asked Jack. Well, I asked Jackie. I said, "What does your dad say about pressure?" And he said, "You know, Dad tells me that when he when he gets under pressure, when he's in position to win, instead of freaking out and thinking the butterflies in your tummy are vultures, you know, um, he tells himself." This is where I want to be. This is what I've worked for, and I'm going to take advantage of the situation. So he turns a negative into a positive. I thought it was brilliant. Agreed.
1: Tim, just a couple more before I let you go, and I want to take you down memory lane in 1990 because that was a great year for you in the majors. You finished tied for fifth at the U.S. Open at Medina, tied for twelfth at the Open Championship at St. Andrews, and tied for eighth at the PGA Championship at Shoal Creek over in Birmingham, not too far from home. Talk about being in the mix for three majors in the same season.
0: Well, the U.S. Open, unfortunately, I'll die never forgetting that one. That that was probably the biggest heartbreak of. My um, <clears throat> I led it to halfway point. I became the first player in history to ever reach 9-under in U.S. Open competition, and I set the course record in the in the midst. And um, I was with Steve Elkington, and he worked with Butch Harmon at the time, you know, a top teacher in the world. And Butch and I were friends and a great, great guy. Still have the utmost respect for him. And when we got through playing on Friday afternoon, Butch, he put his arm around me, said, that's the greatest two rounds of, of, of ball striking I've ever seen in my life. And to me, that's one of my all-time compliments that I ever received during my career. Um, what what happened to me, I missed seven putts under five feet the last two days. And that nemesis, uh, Chris, as you know, was <clears throat> I, I kept it so simple, tee to green, but I'd walk on the green and I'd have 50 things go through my head. Um, you know, keep your head down, accelerate, keep the stroke smooth, this and that. Instead of like Bob, Bob teaches putting like you shoot a basketball. You just look and react. You know, your eyes are the camera. They relay it to the computer, which controls your hands and arms, and the computer says this is how hard you stroke it, and you don't question. it. And if we do start questioning it, when we get our conscious mind turned on, instead of leaving it to the all-powerful subconscious, that's when bad things happen.
1: Well, Tim, I've got my next guest, Ian Baker Finch, hanging on the line. He's going to join me here in just a moment. And you and I uh, were talking before uh, before the show went live about Ian. Um, you made a couple of really good comparisons. Uh, I, I wanted you to share your thoughts of, of Ian and uh, sort of the analogy you gave me.
0: Well, I told you, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart, if someone asked me to describe uh, Finchie in four words, it would be pure class and total gentleman. And if they said, that's not enough, give us two more words, I would say amazing putter. Oh, my gosh, he could brush it with the best of them. And just, just pure class, great family man, Incredibly handsome guy, but incredibly humble. And just just one of my absolute favorite people. And unfortunately, we've lost touch. But what little I watched off, I love his broadcast. He does such a great job. And and uh, please give him my best and tell him I love him.
1: I will absolutely do that. Now, you, you left one part of that out, right? Because if we could have had a designated putter, the world would have never heard of Tiger Woods, right?
0: Yeah, oh, I, look, you you tell him I said that. I mean, if I could have hit, he could have putted. Oh, my gosh, we'd have both been in the World Golf Hall of Fame years ago. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's you, awesome. you
0: will thoroughly enjoy him, as will your fans. He is just the greatest guy you could ever talk to and know.
1: Well, Tim, before I let you go, let our listeners know you're a wonderful teacher of the game now. Talk about how they can get a hold of you and then follow you, whether it's online or it's on social media.
0: Ask them not to call me until it's 97-degree weather gets out of Georgia. (laughs) 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 No doubt. No, they can go to my website online, timsimpsongolf.com. And, you know, I don't promote myself anymore because it's like i'm getting too 64 to stand out in 98 degree weather but uh actually a dear friend of mine called me today and told me my son is up playing your golf course you know i just wanted to let you know and i said what time did he tee off this and that little boy's 10 and i went out and introduced myself to him i had met him since he was two in his little little pajamas at the house one night and um Anyway, it, it brought back so many wonderful memories uh, for 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 me and for him, and to see this little 10-year-old hit a golf ball, I'm like, wow, you are way ahead of where I was at end. So that's what I miss about not being able to play, Chris. You know, I hadn't played in almost four years because of my three back surgeries. I can't play anymore. I hit balls three, four, five times a year, but... You know, to to be able to take your son out or a friend of mine's son or my grandchildren out, that's what I miss. That's what I really miss about the game.
1: Well, Tim, I always enjoy getting to spend time with you. It's always a privilege. It's always a lot of fun and very insightful. Uh, I hope you'll come back and join me again soon because you're a delight, my friend.
0: Well, anytime, Chris. And thanks for thinking of me, and you do a fabulous job on this show. There's no wonder why you have such an incredible following. Well, I appreciate you saying
1: that, Tim. You're the best. Take care, stay safe, and uh, look forward to catching up with you again soon,
0: Tim. Call me anytime. Thank you, Chris. Bye-bye.
1: Thanks, thanks Tim. That's a great Tim Simpson, folks. It doesn't get much better than that. Um, TimSimpsonGolf.com is his website, and, um, you know, great ball striker, great, great in college obviously had a really good uh, career on the PGA Tour and a heck of a nice guy. And uh, I can't say enough good things about him, and I can't wait to get him back on the show.